Matthew chapter 1, we begin in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to verse 19 if you will, verse 19, where we read, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Between Luke's account of the birth of Christ and Matthew's account of the birth of Christ, we find quite a large number of characters, all of whom are worth considering. There is, of course, the Virgin Mary, the angel Gabriel that appeared to her. There's Mary's cousin Elizabeth, who recognized the Savior in Mary's womb when the child in her own womb, that being John the Baptist, leaped for joy when Mary arrived at Elizabeth's house. Then there's the shepherds watching over their flocks by night. I love to think on them. I love to envision what it must have been like on that still, what was probably a dull and mundane evening, to all of a sudden, and picture this if you can, I think it's worth trying to envision these narratives when we read them. What must it have been like for those shepherds to all of a sudden see the heavens opened and hear a multitude of angels singing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Then there's the wise men from the east, another group of characters. Some suggest that they were from Babylon. They see Christ's star in the east and come to Jerusalem seeking him and bearing uh, gifts for him of gold and frankincense and myrrh. There's Herod who became troubled by the news 
of the wise men, so much so that he would have destroyed Jesus if he could. I preached a pro-life message based on Herod, pointing out that there's a sense in which every abortion that's committed is a swipe that is taken at Christ and at Christ's rule. Praise the Lord that Herod failed in his attempt to eliminate Christ. And so does every abortion fail to dethrone Christ or nullify the value that he places on life. There's also Simeon, who takes Christ into his arms in the temple at Jerusalem and then prays, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. That's in Luke chapter 2, verse 29. And I love to point out with regard to Simeon that to see Christ is to see the Lord's salvation. And there's also Anna, an elderly widow and a prophetess who served God in the temple night and day with fastings and prayers, who upon seeing the baby Jesus gives thanks and speaks of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. In each instance, all of these characters bear witness to the identity of Christ, and they teach us something about Christ. One particular character that I passed over up until now may, re, may be regarded, I suppose, as almost simply incidental to the narrative of the birth of Christ. And that person is Joseph, the espoused husband of Mary. What about Joseph? I say the espoused husband because it means that he was engaged to Mary, but had not yet married her. In ancient times, however, being espoused to a husband or wife was as binding an obligation as being married to him or her, so much so that it would take a bill of divorcement to sever the bond between the espoused or engaged husband and wife. Joseph, of course, plays a very important part in the narrative of Christ's birth, in that he provides cover for Mary. He's willing to appear as the father of this baby in her womb, even though he's not. And he's willing to accompany her on the journey to Jerusalem, where they're to be taxed, or as the marginal reading puts it, enrolled. This event could very well have been a census rather than a taxing of the people, or I suppose it may have been both. And so we find Joseph with Mary, his espoused wife, when the, when the time came for the Christ child to be born. Interesting to note that following the account of Christ's birth, Joseph drops out of sight in the gospel narratives. We never read of him again, unless it be with reference to Christ being his supposed father, or his supposed son. And this leads commentators to suggest that Joseph evidently died by the time that Christ was grown and entered into his earthly ministry. 
Perhaps this is why Joseph appears to be more or less an incidental character in the narrative of Christ. A closer look at Joseph, however, I think reveals a lot more than what might appear on the surface. A closer and more contemplative look at his character, I believe, shows us a certain Christ-likeness of this man who played a unique role in the narrative of the birth of Christ. So what I'd like to do this morning is to take a closer look at him. And as we zoom in on this character, so to speak, I want you to try in your mind's eye to put yourselves in his shoes or his sandals, if you will, so to speak. And by taking a closer look at him, I want to demonstrate to you the Christ-likeness of Joseph. The Christ-likeness of Joseph. Just two points that I want to cover under this theme this morning. We know, of course, that when it comes to our sanctification, we're all being conformed to the image of Christ. He's the absolute model when it comes to our character development. And yet, in another sense, that is, in a human sense, one might argue that there's a resemblance of Jesus himself to what we might term his adopted earthly father, Joseph. Let me show you what I mean as we consider the Christ-likeness of Joseph. Think with me, first of all, on the Christ-likeness of his compassion. The Christ-likeness of Joseph's compassion. Look at the words of our text again in verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily or privately. Imagine the initial heartbreak that would have come upon Joseph when he learns that this young lady that he's engaged to is expecting a baby. Joseph knows beyond all doubt that he's not the father of this child. And the very fact that he's minded to put her away indicates or at least suggests to us that he strongly su uh, suspects the infidelity on his espoused wife's part. How else does one account for a spouse being with child? Look at what the previous verse tells us about Mary. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. There are two parts of the discovery revealed in this verse, and I think that it's reasonable to think that there was a time gap of some kind between the two parts, the first part being the simple fact of her being found with child, the later part being that this child was revealed to be of the Holy Ghost. 
The first part of the discovery then simply reveals the fact of her pregnancy. She was found with child. The word found carries the idea of being discovered or recognized or detected. And the very fact that this is expressed in a passive voice suggests that she didn't step forward and announce this. No, this was found. She was found. This was discovered or detected in her. Now keep in mind that one of the first things Mary did after meeting with the angel Gabriel was to leave her home and go to visit her cousin Elizabeth. We have the account of that in Luke chapter 1 and verse 39, which reads like this, And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah. The implication of the verse is that she left immediately upon hearing the news from the angel as to what was going to happen with her. There's no indication that she had any interaction with Joseph before her departure. One preacher I listened to described the scene as Mary leaving immediately, perhaps leaving Joseph a note that she had to leave and that she would explain her departure later. Luke chapter 1 verse 56 tells us that Mary, her cousin Elizabeth, with her cousin Elizabeth, spent about three months with her cousin and then returned to her own house. How do you suppose she looked following those three months? Could it be that she was starting to bear the appearance of one that was with child? I know that such appearances vary greatly Uh, among women. Some can go just about right up to the point of deliverance and you can barely tell that they're carrying a child. Others you can tell soon after that they're bearing a child. I wonder how it was after three months with Elizabeth. Could it be that she was found with child by her appearance before she even offered any explanation? to her espoused husband, Joseph. And imagine the challenge to Joseph once he initially heard Mary's explanation as to why she was with child. Now keep in mind, as you try to envision Joseph's response to Mary, Mary making the announcement to her espoused husband about her condition, keep in mind the historical context. Some 400 years had passed since the last voice of a prophet was heard in Israel. When you flip the page in your Bible from the last page of Malachi in the Old Testament to the first page of Matthew in the New Testament, you're covering a long time frame just in turning that page. Think about that for a moment. 400 years. That's longer than our nation, the United States, way longer than we've even existed as a country. 
The entire Old Testament would have been ancient in the days of Joseph and Mary. The accounts of the kings and prophets, the spectacular miracles that are recorded throughout the Old Testament, that's all ancient history. We look upon it today, of course, as being ancient history, but what we don't take into account, perhaps, is that Joseph and Mary would have regarded it as ancient history in their time. So it's in that setting of all the miracles being ancient history that now Mary would say to Joseph, uh, I'm with child, but Joseph, uh, it's not what you think. Joseph, dear, it's supernatural. It's miraculous. I'm bearing a child by the Holy Ghost, and an angel has told me this. I say, how do you suppose Joseph would have reacted? What would his first response have been, especially since miracles were ancient history? Keep in mind now that what's described in Matthew 1 and verse 19 precedes what takes place in verse 20 when we read that Joseph was minded to put her away privily or privately. Verse 20 tells us that it was while Joseph was thinking along these lines that the angel appeared to him in a dream and would have confirmed to him whatever Mary had tried to explain to him. Oh, thank God for an angelic appearance to explain and confirm it to him. His initial reaction, however, before that angelic confirmation might very well have been to make her a public example. He may have had in mind the Old Testament law, which would have been on his side had he decided to do so. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy chapter 22, beginning in verse 21, where it describes a scene in which somebody in marital infidelity is investigated. And we read in verse 21, But if this thing be true, and the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel, then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she die, because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house. So shalt thou put evil away from among you. The stipulation of Deuteronomy 22 certainly would have been among the thoughts going through Joseph's mind when we read in verse 20 of Joseph thinking on these things. But then it may be that another portion of Deuteronomy would have occurred to him as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, just a couple chapters later, we read beginning in verse 1, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Now, according to our text in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19, 
it is this stipulation in Deuteronomy 24 that Joseph was leaning towards as he contemplated what to do with his espoused wife. As heartbroken and as angry as the discovery of his wife's condition would have initially made him, it does appear from the text that he opted for the course of compassion instead of the course of making her a public example by way of execution. This is why, why I'm saying that in his thoughts on what to do with his espoused wife, Joseph shows us in some measure the compassion of Christ. Unlike Mary, you see, who was not really unfaithful to her spouse, the human race in Adam and Eve was unfaithful to God. And because we've inherited that sinful nature from our original parents, we've inherited the propensity ourselves of being unfaithful to God. And we demonstrate our unfaithfulness when we exalt ourselves above God and when we exalt the things of the world to be higher and more meaningful to us than God. When worldly possessions and pleasures become the most important things to us, we demonstrate our unfaithfulness to God. And our unfaithfulness subjects us to the death penalty. Our shorter catechism in describing the misery of that estate into what man fell tells us this. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. But in spite of our real infidelity... God adopted a course of compassion. That babe in Mary's womb that Joseph may have initially mistaken as an indication of her infidelity was in fact a great demonstration of God's goodwill and favor and compassion to the fallen human race. That's why the angels could say to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this is why Joseph would be instructed by the angel to call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The very meaning of the name Jesus. Let's ever keep in mind today the compassion that God shows toward those that have been unfaithful to him. Instead of condemning them, he sent his son to live and die for them. What incredible and unmerited favor God has shown toward us. So the compassion of Joseph toward his espoused wife reminds us of the compassion of that holy child in Mary's womb who came to live and die for those that would believe in him. 
But let's move on now to consider next and finally the Christ-likeness of Joseph's justice. The Christ-likeness of Joseph's justice. There is something in our text that I have to admit I have for the longest time found somewhat perplexing in terms of trying to understand it. Look again at verse 19, especially to the word in that verse that describes Joseph's character. Notice, then Joseph, her husband, and underscore this now, being a just man, a just or a righteous man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Underscore that word, just. Joseph, her husband, being a just man, adopted this course of action. Now, everything that I just described in my previous point had to do with Joseph being a compassionate man. Out of consideration for his espoused wife, who had just broken his heart, he nevertheless would not make a public example out of her. He would put her away privately. Wouldn't it make more sense for the verse to say, Joseph, her husband, being a compassionate man, would put her away privately? After all, it would not have been a breach of justice for Joseph to have in to have insisted on the Old Testament provision that would have called for making a public example out of Mary. That would have been very much in keeping with justice. Why is he called a just man? And then his compassion is described. I have to admit that this verse has puzzled me for the longest time Every time I've read it, I found it interesting to read various commentators on this verse. For the most part, they either don't address the issue of Joseph being a just man, or they have suggested, some of them, that compassion is a part of true righteousness or justice. Listen to the King James Study Bible, for example, what it says about Joseph. We read the comment, On the basis of the Mosaic Law, Joseph and Mary were legally bound to one another. Joseph intended to divorce Mary as the law allowed for in the case of infidelity. Thus, given Joseph's assumption that Mary had been unfaithful, he was just in what he purposed to do though he was also compassionate, intending to divorce her privately. The Reformation Study Bible says this, In Joseph's day, engagement is nearly as binding as marriage, and infidelity during betrothal makes divorce virtually obligatory. In other words, the suggestion is that Joseph would be obligated to divorce her. Albert Barnes, in his commentary on the New Testament, says this, Justice consists in rendering to every man his own. Yet this is evidently not the character intended to be given here of Joseph. 
It means that he was kind, tender, merciful, so attached to Mary that he was not willing that she should be exposed to public shame. He sought, therefore, secretly to dissolve the connection and to restore her to her friends without the punishment commonly inflicted on adultery. The word just has not unfrequently this meaning of mildness or mercy. See, for example, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. Oh, I've cited that verse many times. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins upon our confession and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't find these explanations particularly helpful. It leaves the matter in my mind to be something of a mystery as to why Joseph would be called a just man, and then his compassion is described. Compassion, you see, is not essentially or necessarily connected to justice. If it was, then God would be obligated by his justice to save sinners, but God is not obligated. He's obligated by his justice to condemn sinners, but he's not obligated by his justice to save them. Indeed, the wonder of the gospel is that God could devise a way of salvation that would not set aside his justice, but would satisfy it by fulfilling it in the life and death of Christ. So these explanations of Joseph being a just man I don't feel do justice to explaining the text. And then I came across an explanation in the commentary, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, that I think gives by far the best explanation for the statement and really helps us by giving us the real picture behind Joseph's actions. Listen to what that commentary says. I'm quoting now. That some communication had passed between him, Joseph, and his betrothed, Mary, directly or indirectly on the subject after she returned from her three-month visit to Elizabeth can hardly be doubted. You get what he's saying there? There must have been some communication between Joseph and Mary upon her return from her visit to her cousin. Nor does the purpose to divorce her necessarily imply disbelief on Joseph's part of the explanation given him. Oh, there's what I take to be a very important key to Joseph's contemplated action. He was not contemplating divorcing her because he didn't believe her account of how she was with child. On the contrary, he was contemplating the best way for her to go forward on her mission of bringing forth the Messiah, and he was willing himself to bow out of the picture, so to speak, so his espoused wife could go forward with her all-important mission. And what would be the best way to do that? To get out of the way. 
believing the account she had given to him. Well, surely making a public example out of her wouldn't be an option. He must put her away privately so that the Messiah could be born. These commentators continue. The evangelist, that is Matthew, seems to convey as much by ascribing the proposal to screen her to the justice of his character. He might think it altogether unsuitable and incongruous in such circumstances to follow out the marriage. That makes so much more sense to me than any other explanation I've been given. And what an amazing character Joseph shows himself to be in that light. He sees the truth that his espoused wife is chosen for a mission that is way more important than his marriage to her. So he's willing to yield himself to the will of God by bowing out of the marriage. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown continue, Who would not feel for him after receiving such intelligence and before receiving any light from above? As he brooded over the matter alone in the stillness of the night, his domestic prospects darkened and his happiness blasted for life, his mind slowly making itself up to the painful step, yet planning how to do it in the way least offensive at the last extremity, the Lord himself interposes. The Lord, thankfully, had a better idea. And so the angel says to Joseph, verse 20, Joseph, thou son of David, and underscore this, fear not to take Mary unto thee, uh, to take unto thee Mary thy wife. Don't be afraid to do this, Joseph. Doesn't that fit the explanation that's given to us? You can well imagine the great fear and the consternation that would have filled Joseph. He's thinking, I need to get out of the way. This is way above and beyond me. This is way more important than my marriage to this girl. I, I, I've got to leave her to do God's will. I've got to bow out of the picture. I'll put her away privately. And the angel says, no, Joseph, don't be afraid to take her as thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then a few verses later, verse 24, we read, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus I was listening to a message on this very text that I just happened to catch on the radio a few days ago. And the preacher was pointing out that uh, he could relate in many respects to, uh, to Mary uh, and, and the case of what would appear to be infidelity and compassion being shown and ministered to 
uh, people in that condition. In fact, he shared that it was uh, his personal ministry in his household to take in unwed mothers and to minister to them. But then he went on to say, but I've never seen anyone like this character Joseph and his actions and his deliberations. Rather than trying to connect righteousness to compassion in a way that really can't be done, it makes more sense to connect righteousness or justice to submission. And this is what we find Joseph doing, submitting now to the will of God, willing to set it aside if that proved to be God's will, but then once God's will was revealed to him, well, okay, Joseph will go ahead then and take Mary to be his wife. And in this connection with righteousness and submission, I suggest to you that Joseph resembles Christ. Christ came into this world, you see, to submit himself to his Father's will. And his Father's will was agreed to by Christ in the covenant of redemption when the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forged out a plan of salvation that would rescue man from the estate of sin and misery and bring him into an estate of salvation. This would require perfect obedience on Christ's part, even obedience to death, the cruel death of the cross, so the justice of Joseph contemplated action of divorce can best be understood in terms of his submission to the will of God and his willingness to submit to God's will. And in this way, he points us to Christ who would perfectly submit to his Father's will and in so doing would accomplish redemption. Indeed, at that very moment in our text, Christ was submitting to his Father's will by condescending so low as to take his appointed place in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that he might be born of her and accomplish the very thing that his name Jesus depicts, which is salvation, salvation that comes from Jehovah, I wonder this morning, have you heard, spiritually speaking, the angel saying to you, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. If you've responded by faith to the angel's message, then it's incumbent upon you that you come and adore him, Christ the Lord. And if you've never responded by faith to the angel's message, then may you hear this morning a message unto you, and I love to underscore and make it a point of emphasis from the angelic message, unto you is born this day a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Oh, may you, by the grace of God, submit yourself to that Savior, to the saving of your soul.
So what an incredible character we find in a man that might be regarded as an incidental character, and yet a closer look, I think, reveals him to be very Christ-like in his contemplation and in his actions. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence this morning and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee. We thank thee for all the circumstances that surrounded the birth of thy Son. We thank thee, Lord Jesus, for thy willingness to come into the world. We thank thee for the way in which thou, in thy wisdom, did orchestrate the way in which Christ would come into the world. And we bless thee, Lord Jesus, for having accomplished the mission for which thou didst come, to die for our sins, that we might be saved. O oh Lord, may that message fill our hearts to overflowing in the peace and joy that are our portion because of thy great grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.